This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Halftime Show Podcast. Oh, he loves the fire What a goal! This is the Halftime Show with Umar Adouri on Pulse 95. Nice strike! Oh, better than nice! Salam and welcome to the Halftime Show with Omar Duri. I am your host covering everything sport, international, local. Coming up on today's show, Callum Irvine, who has worked at FIFA, the AFC, the England FA. He's a consultant specializing in technical systems, talent productions, development and sports governance. And he's been in the industry for 15 years. He's coming on the show today on the Halftime Show. Make sure you tune in and buckle up because we're coming back right after the break. Let's do this. This is the Halftime Show. With Omar Adouri. Oh, he loves the fire What a goal! This is the halftime show with Umar Adouri on Pulse 95. Nice strike! Oh, better than nice! Salam and welcome to the Halftime Show with Omar Duri. I'm your host covering everything sport, international and local. Hope you're having a blessed day wherever you're tuned in around the world, whether it's 95FM, Pulse95Radio.com, our app, Sharjah Broadcasting Authority, or even if you're in the comfort of your very own home listening to the podcast, you've made it. And I've got a great guest in store. Now, I've been chasing this person for a while, mainly because he's got his hands in a lot of things and he's done a lot of things I, was, I could only wish for. Uh, Callum Irvine's on the show. He's been at FIFA, AFC, the England FA. And he's a consultant specializing in so many different things that really, really like uses you know, a lot of thought and brain and technical systems and talent production and development and sports governance. Like I could, I was just speaking to him before we came on the show. I was already thinking that's a segment. Uh, Callum, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, very happy to be here and sorry I've been difficult to track down. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, no problem. No problem. Callum, for those that don't know, um, I normally like to go behind the scenes and a lot of the stuff you do is development and working behind the scenes from all the governing bodies around the world. Tell me a little bit more about what you do, firstly. Um, and you mentioned there in the introduction, and thank you, that was very flattering. Um, uh, specialist in many areas. I'd probably actually describe myself as a generalist uh, across many areas. Now, um, I'd probably suggest the world now seeks specialists that know um, uh, loads about one particular subject, and that's great, and I, I'm a big fan of specialists. I've gone probably the other way in that I've tried to know a little bit about a lot of areas, and where I generally um, succeed or find work or, or get to work on some really interesting projects is where different areas of particularly football, but in other sports as well, where they interact. So it might be grassroots systems and how they link with talent systems and then how they link with high performance systems um, in the overall structure of an organization. Or it might be how the governance affects, you know, how the staffing structures and coaching systems all work within a governing body. So um, I think it's a it's it's an interesting kind of skill set to have at the moment because we do have specialisms and when you have a lot of people specialising in a particular area, sometimes they can't see how the other areas maybe contribute to what they're doing or what they could possibly do to support them. Um, and that's when you get things like silo working, people just focused on one bit and not complementing other areas. So I generally um, work in places where things need to be joined together perhaps a little bit better or where um, 
organizations could just do with a pair of external eyes who aren't looking through the same prism that they're potentially looking at to see you know either what improvements could be made how productive are they uh, and i find that fascinating because i can be working on a project around you know how a board and um, congress and um, executive arm function within an organization to you know essentially going and looking at how talent systems are producing because you know, in my world, systems are systems. Mm-hmm. Um, now they've got their intricacies and they've got their subtleties and nuances, but um, the systems you create need to work. And, you know, it's something I picked up when I was working at the, the UK government sports department here is, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the Great Britain used to produce medal winners by chance. So we had a really good rower or a really good, you know, Great, Great Britain tend to win medals and things involving horses and boats. Um, now, what we didn't have was a really productive system where you were producing these people. There was a conveyor belt effect. Now, um, that's that's kind of what we're talking about. System development is taking those you know those elements of talent and putting them onto something which can produce things consistently. Mm. Now that you know you've got to marry that off with you know certainly athlete welfare and there's a lot of stuff at the moment around athlete welfare but actually that systematic approach to producing things is kind of where i attack the world from i suppose interesting and you mentioned grassroots there and then you mentioned you've been to places has anyone surprised you with with the level of talent in terms of grassroots in the areas that you've traveled to um i mean you tend to find talent everywhere um the, the problem is is does the talent get an opportunity uh, and does that opportunity exist um, I suppose across the spectrum for for everybody no matter what their background you know whether it's economic social and things like that so you know you work in places like you know for example in China where the population is huge you know if um, if 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 China had a really good talent development system which is being worked on um, you know there's no reason that country can't be you know being top of the world in pretty much everything. You see in the Olympic medals table where there are sustainable talent systems. That will happen in football at some point, um, purely because of numbers. Um, I suppose with talent, the key things for me, and it's you know one of the projects I'm, I'm consulting on at the moment, is making sure that that talent gets a chance, um, which in the first instance, is it being seen by somebody? Um, is somebody getting the opportunity to view that talent? So one of my, um, I suppose, my key areas is, is around talent ID and what does that system look like? How does scouting work? Is scouting systematic or is it a guy who used to play for the club for 20 years that, that, has, that knows what he's looking for? You know, that's great um, and should be embraced. But at the same time, you know, what are we looking for? Should football be around talent development at younger age groups or should it be around children having fun? Um, there's a really good guy in Japan that I'm starting to do some work with um, on a project called Soccer Starts at Home, which is about, it's about the early years. It's before coaching interventions. It's before clubs. It's actually having some balls in your house and, in, and getting parents involved in not coaching children, but getting them comfortable with a ball at their feet. And all these are really important interventions. But again, it's that thing of joining it all up, which becomes the really difficult task. This is the Halftime Show with Omar Adouri. Oh, he loves to fire that 
This is the halftime show with Umar Adouri on Pulse 95. Nice strike! Oh, better than nice! Wonderful! Salam and welcome to the halftime show with Omar Adouri. I'm your host covering everything sport, international and local. And I'm thinking it's normally cool to hear from that street kid that made off the streets of the favelas of Brazil, you know, and then they come over here and that's kind of attractive to, to scout or to find. But then you have the other side, which is the Jamie Vardy's that start late and develop late. Is that a lack of scouting or is that just something that, you know, uh, happens depending on who's looking where? Yeah, I, I think there's... There's a lot going on. I'm glad you brought the Jamie Vardy example up because there's a guy and there's another guy. I mean, it's a guy I went to school with, so I know the story really well, a guy called Grant Holt. Um, best player in our school by, you know, a long way. Played around the non-league system and some lower leagues and Norwich picked him up in League One and, you know, he was the top English scorer in the Premiership one season. Very unlucky um, not to get an England call-up that year. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of defaults in this there's a lot of luck you know Jamie Vardy was a class player and was playing at the top end of the non-league system so you know would likely have been seen by somebody but it still took um, you know a professional club down on its luck I suppose Mm. because Leicester were you know not in the Premier League at that point they were in League One if I remember correctly and taking a punt you know um, and I think it was the first million pound player from non-league football so there was clearly some talent there what you know, my, my personal feelings are, and I'm, you know, this this is this is me. I think we we label um, players very early. Um, you know, my my own club in in non-league football that I, you know, my village club, we pick up some players from the local professional club who are coming to the end. Very very good players. Um, my question would be. Who's tracking these players after they leave an academy system? Because actually, those those players have had a lot of development time put into them. And what is the system for tracking them? So again, it comes back to uh, this systematic approach. Now, even at my club in level eight, we get a lot of people in you know various professional club coats coming along with a notepad and pen, mm-hmm. um, you know, looking at players. Um, so there is a system. Mm-hmm. I would suggest it's, this is going to sound terrible in terms of uh, language, it's not a systematic system. <laughs> it is a, um, it's a finger in the air, let's go and have a look. And these right. guys are brilliant. The scouts that go around, they cover a lot of miles and they've uncovered a lot of players. But um, that aspect on late developers is is a really, really important one because even in you know maturation ages and when a player finishes growing we've sometimes already made a decision about these guys before you know harry kane's a great example was sent out on loan because he needed to finish his school even um, david beckham went and did a year's loan at um preston north end right you know playing in the lower league so you know those clubs there have actually you know they've found a way to use the lower league clubs as a finishing school and that's that's really important, but those clubs did it internally. It wasn't after the players had been released and then they kept track of them. So I don't think anyone's all the way there yet, certainly with late developers. Right. Um, early years, we tend to harvest many. Let's bring in as many people we deem to have talent as we can and spend some time with them. Now, that isn't a, a bad way to do it. I, probably what I'm suggesting is um certainly in the in the less developed countries it's it's that network to be able to spot people at whatever age they are because mm-hmm. you know in some places 
um, children aren't playing organized football until they're 10, 11 years old. So people are looking for different things. And um, to quote my friend Tom in Japan, sometimes we've got our ladders against the wrong wall and we're yeah. looking for things which, you know, maybe aren't as important as we, as we feel they may be. Um, and especially in countries where a lot of, you know, they hire in a lot of, um, whether it's foreign coaches, foreign scouts, uh, and they're sometimes looking for the things they'd be looking for if they were back home. Um, but that's, you know, that's life. That's not a fault of anybody. It's just how a system develops. And Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, I suppose it's not an exact science, um, but I think we can do a little bit more to join the things up that we're all doing. Absolutely. Coming up next, talking about development, we're actually diving into the UAE Golf League and the second division. So something that you might not always hear all the time on the only place to be at three, the halftime show on Pulse 95. This is the halftime show with Omar Adouri. Oh, he loves the fire then. What a goal! This is the halftime show with Umar Adouri on Pulse 95. Nice strike! Oh, better than nice! Welcome back to the Halftime Show with Omar Duri. I'm your host covering everything sport, international, local. Hope you're having a blessed Saturday wherever you're tuned in around the world. Uh, Callum Irvine's on the show. I'm telling you now, I mean, we, the first segment was fire already and we're just getting warm. We're talking development now. Something I spoke about with uh, Callum on the phone just as a casual conversation when I first met him was the UAE Golf League. Uh, Callum, we spoke about the second division. Sometimes there's this sort of romance about finding a team or a player in the second division and, and watching their progress and watching their development. It's very similar to uh, maybe a season ago, Martinelli in, uh, in the Arsenal team who's come from, a, you know, divisions way below people's uh, TV rights or anything like that. And he's come into the Premier League and hit that by storm. You mentioned the team, was it Quattro? Yeah. yeah Tell me Quattro more about in, Quattro. In Ajman. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it was the whole concept. It was a, it was a project I um, helped with at, the, at its very beginning, and I've, I've kind of tracked it along the way while I've been and doing some work out there. The whole concept's been, it's worked incredibly well. It's, it's a brand new division in the, in the UAFA structure, and the, the UAFA need a lot of credit for actually you know, doing this because I think it's a first for the kind of golf area mm. um, in terms of how the division is structured. And you know, what you found is some just excellent football organizations, you know, a mix of kind of um, locally based teams, which Quattro is one of them, who um, despite the competition finishing early, um, were crowned as champions. A club down in in Abu Dhabi, Al Falah, did a did a fantastic job. Finished second, would have made the grand final. And then there was clubs from, I suppose, across across the country that you know were a mix of. So there was um, City Football Club in Dubai, who were based around a really strong private academy, but you know produced a really good first team to play in that competition. And you know numerous others. Now Quattro are based up in Ajman and have links to uh, Ajman Club and just play great football um, but also you know locally based players offering them an opportunity to play you know in a in a you know a, a prestigious competition uh, with the opportunity to you know potentially whenever that happens to link that up with the rest of the football pyramid so it's just been a really good good news story I think for the country in terms of 
the growth of, um, you know, where, where I'm from, we'd call it affiliated football, but sanctioned football, however you want to call it. And it's great credit to um, everybody who worked on it, you know, at, at the FA, the competitions department, the registrations departments, the technical division, um, and the, the general secretary's office who, who sanctioned it and then allowed it to grow um, with the overall kind of... Um, mantra of creating more locally based players which in time will produce more you know th th there's a plan next year to have youth teams within that structure and that will you know increase the competitiveness over time of the you know the olympic team the first national team and, and the youth national teams and it was just great to see that um you know i've i've been involved in many new competitions starting and it's always really really difficult to to get them through a season and the season happened, you know, which was which was um, um, probably the first priority is making sure the competition got played, and it did. You know, it was only you know the pandemic which cut it short by I think one week. Um, and so the grand final couldn't happen, which is a real shame because it would have been a really good occasion. So that competition, and particularly clubs like Quattro and Al Alfala, who have been given the opportunity to get more, you know, UAE um, nationals playing the game at a decent level is, you know, potentially a game changer for the country. And Absolutely. this is what's great about the UAE. It generally leads. Mm. Um, and that's what's really vibrant about working in the country. And, and others will follow, you know, other yeah. countries around the area will follow this example. So it's great to be the first country to do that. Question question for you, Caleb. I mean, I, another day I was speaking about this on my show, um, Abdurrahman, Ahli, who's playing in Latvia at the moment now, is, is the only UAE playing in Europe. Mm -hmm. With all this talent, and you've seen it yourself, you've been here, you've gone all across from Sharjah to, to Ajman, and you've seen all the different, you know, um, systems and everything. How come we don't have as many players out there in Europe playing, like, playing their trade? It's a really interesting question. I think... Um... I can't give you an exact reason. I think people genuinely want to play in in the UAE Pro League, in the Arabian Gulf League. I think uh, the incentives are there to keep players here, which I don't think is you know a bad thing by design. Mm -hmm. um, what you've seen with other Asian countries, particularly in, in East Asia, is where they have players playing in Europe, their standards have improved. That's not saying the standards are, are, are poor in the Pro League because, because they aren't. Um, it just brings a different level of competition to those players who are who are potentially playing elsewhere. And by default, they are playing with a, you know, with generally a higher standard of player. But the other thing to bear in mind as well is they're being asked different questions in games. So they're playing against different types of players, whether that's um, physically, tactically, uh, technically. So they're having to solve different types of problems when they're playing. So exposure to, I suppose, a different way, a different style of playing football and a different way of playing football is, is really important when you're then talking about going and playing in competitions for national teams, where you are going to be exposed to different types of players, physically, technically, tactically. So I think there's, there's a strong argument to, um, you know, to potentially have more players playing abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a, an equally strong argument to, to keep your best players in the country. You know, I'm, if I think about England as an example, um, our national team has improved greatly 
um, partly because of you know a, a better emphasis on how they're coached when they're in national camp. St George's Park has had a huge influence on our national teams all the way through the junior levels. And we're starting to have in England more and more juniors playing abroad. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of high profile examples. So John Sancho is still at Dortmund. I think he is still at Dortmund. Oh, probably been, not, unless probably, he's been, probably tonight. Probably not for the next few weeks, <laughs> but certainly at the time of this recording he is. Yeah. Um, and there are a few more players out playing abroad, but also, you know, playing in the Premier League, mm-hmm. you're exposed to lots of different ways of playing anyway, purely for the nature There's 30% of the players are, only 30% right. of the players are English. So it just offers players that little bit of um, extra opportunity to to solve more problems. And I think we're moving into a, in, into a way of playing football where you know, it's not necessarily about the exact game plan. It's being able to think, to have a basic structure, but then to solve problems on the pitch. And, you know, the more exposure you have to having to solve different problems, the more equipped you are to do it. That's my opinion uh, after nope. after a very short period of time. But Spot on. And I'm, I'm going to dive into debate. that as well. You know, you said it yourself. <laughs> I'm going to dive into that right after this break because I want to talk to you about the different systems, the different countries, the different academies that have brought out all this talent and if we're going to be seeing more of that on the only place to be at three the halftime show on pulse 95 this is the halftime show with omar aduri on pulse 95 95 oh he loves the fire and what a goal this is the halftime show with omar aduri on pulse 95 nice strike Welcome back to the Halftime Show. If you're just tuning in, where have you been? You missed a great show so far uh, with Callum Irvine on the show. And we are talking about, oh man, we, we spoke about grassroots. We spoke about the UAE Golf League second division. We spoke about the talent that we have here in the UAE. And now what I want to pick your brain on, Callum, is there is... When I think academies and I think all these players that were produced, I think of institutions, I think of, you know, uh, structures and systems that we spoke about. Claire Fontaine comes to mind. I watched the Nicholas and Elka documentary the other day and I I remember all the talent that came out of that organization. The Ajax Academy that I grew up to, probably giving away my age a little bit, but giving, uh, grew up to with all the talent and the systems that they have now, they're still producing players. Juventus have a university. That's another thing that if I only knew there was something going to be called a football university 20 years ago, I'd be very, ex- <laughs> very excited. Um, with all these academies, and are we seeing a trend of seeing more of them? Or is it just, you know, they've got the almost Mount Rushmore feel to them and the rest are kind of aspiring to get to that level? Um, I mean, you've mentioned a few examples there. There's 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 loads of great examples in the world of of, of really good academies. You know, everyone goes to Ajax, but Feyenoord is is you know different level. Um, and you know, there's a lot of the Spanish clubs. You know, even not the two famous Spanish clubs. You know, a lot of the academies that operate in La Liga have a similar output on life. Um, I mean, you tend to find with academies, and you know, I've, I've studied these in depth. That uh, where academies are really good, uh, they really value the young person as a young person, not just a footballer. Um, education and their formal education is incredibly important. Um, you know, teaching life skills, not just football skills, is incredibly important, and making sure that they're comfortable in their environment. You know. Um, 
you know, thankfully, a lot of these messages are now traveling around the world pretty well. You know, it's not about winning games. It's about trying to win games and doing everything you can to win games. But it's actually about, you know, developing young players. The result is almost the least important aspect of it. And that's really difficult when you're in football, you know, not just for coaches and clubs, but it's difficult for for young people to um, go into a game and be thinking about their personal development because they're playing football, you know, they, they want to win matches and score goals and all of that side. But, um, you know, academies and philosophies are now, you know, how a, how a club wants to um, set itself up, but also things like, you know, who's who's running the academy? What's, what's the philosophy of the academy? What's their management structure like? How do their coaches feel empowered? What's the links to education? Welfare of young people is really, really important. What's you know what's great at the moment is the pro league are, are now um, they're starting their big safeguarding operation, which is about making sure young people, you know, whatever level of football, are completely safe and have their welfare cared for. Um, and what's great about the UAE is you know that's generally pretty good in terms of um, how the young people are looked after. Um, but the other aspects are embracing things like sports science. Um, but ultimately, you know, what are the plans for player progression? How how are they systematically looking at what they're producing and and what's deemed successful? You know, yes. because yes. it's not just about producing players for your first team. That's an important thing. It's mm. about producing players for other first teams. You know, academies shouldn't be a cost center. They should be an important part of the business as well because your job is to produce high quality players that you either want to keep or somebody else wants to buy you know we're in a commodity market if you like um but you know people often call Ajax I know Ajax are involved with uh, with Sharjah um and have a lot of these partnerships throughout the world and they you know when you talk about the mid 90s at Ajax that was you know a real golden era where you know, the economics of the big leagues haven't quite hit. So, you know, they would be in the Champions League final, um, you know, often with a team of home produced players in that famous kit. It was, a, it was a wonderful time to be watching football before all the massive money came in. Goosebumps. Um, Kind of oh, I, 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 rem I remember those teams well, you know, they they were they really were dynasties and, you know, Ajax have now essentially become a, a selling club mm. um, as well as, you know, competing in, you know, getting to probably the quarterfinals of the Champions League or, you know, the latest stages of the Europa League, you know, that's that's almost Ajax, Can I ask which is you, really Helen? sad. Can I ask, you mentioned, you called them a selling club. Some people say feeder club. Why hasn't one of these massive clubs that we hear about, the top five in the world, partnered with Ajax to be able to call them their feeder club? Does Ajax have too much, too much? I think personality for that or too much meat I don't that. think Ajax will ever be a feeder club to anybody <laughs> you know they but you may see you not call have... them a selling club though yeah and, and that's I, I true think, it's, I think, it's a fact yeah. I think that's the economics of the situation mm. um, you know they will they will lose their best players yeah. um, because people will buy them. Um, that's that's a credit to Ajax. That's Absolutely. a string to their bow. Now, what they can't probably affect is the TV revenue that's going into to the Dutch league, to the Eredivisie. Um, and while that's a while that's a fact, they will they will you know have to play their role in terms of the the economics now. You know, if, if Ajax will, because of the nature of the club, they are, hold on to that identity of being a club that produced. So will Feyenoord. Um, they will hold on to that identity of clubs that 
produce players. And as long as they do that, they will be successful in what they do. What What's interesting that's coming around the corner is at some point there will be an expanded Champions League concept or a European Super League or something because although I would hate to see that, um, I think there's an inevitability around an expanded Champions League and I don't know how it expands too much from what it is now with national competition. So if that happens, you know, Ajax will then be back in that big league because the, the revenues will change. Now, although I'd hate to see that happen, it would be good to see, you know, and, and you, there's other teams as well from that bracket that used to do really well. You know, the Greek teams used to do yeah. well in the 90s Champions League. You know, Hungarian teams used to do well. You know, there's, there's um, you know, Serbian teams and, and teams from the former Yugoslavia used to do well. So um, even even French teams, I mean, apart from, from PSG, who... You know, have revenues for obvious reasons. You know that. You know, you don't see Marseille and Lyon and, yeah. and those names because the economics don't yeah. quite work out in terms of them being able to attract players. But the academy point is, you know, it's uh, when people think of Ajax now, they generally think of their player production, and um, that's part of their identity. So Absolutely. you know, that, and and it's a really, and that's why they have so much integrity around the world because they produce their own. You know, the same as. Manchester United, you know, back in the day and still, you know, you still look for and the fans demand that Manchester United produce their own players and that's an important part of a of a club's identity that success can't take away or, you know, that that's if that's in your DNA, it's really positive. But the lessons from those academies, you know, they're beginning to be learned around the world and as long as they're embedded within the cultural context of the country or the club, then that's really powerful. That's really powerful. Absolutely. Coming up next, I can't believe the show has almost reached full time, but I'm going to pick uh, Callum's brain on some more things, especially on his upcoming projects. Find out more on the only place to be at three, the halftime show on Pulse 95. This is the halftime show with Omar Adouri. Oh, he loves the fire then. This is the halftime show with Umar Adouri on Pulse 95. Nice strike! Oh, better than nice! Wonderful! Welcome back to the halftime show. Oh, I'm so gutted. It's, it's almost full time already. Um, Callum, I'm going to dive straight into this. Uh, Callum, you mentioned something in, in the third segment regarding DNA and regarding academies and regarding philosophy. Here's a question for you, and I only ask you this question because your knowledge and it comes down to being around the different systems is incredible if let's say we look at a team like West Ham and West Ham have always been famous for their uh, production of players and the talent and the youth and the academy but then we also know that today's world it's a business football sport is a business they need to survive so then they will go and get a coach that, that doesn't suit the style of what the West Ham traditional DNA goes by where do we draw the line when it comes down to your academy as to the philosophy of the manager coming in? There's one for you. That's a great question. <laughs> um, the, uh, personally, I think um, your identity and your integrity as an organization is, is, is the most important thing. I think you, a smart board of directors or football director recruits based on the identity of the club and the philosophy of the club and you should never be in a position where your identity is owned by a 
you know, and I, and I say this because I have a lot of friends who work in this field as a, a transient head coach or manager because the tenure of a manager or head coach is, is generally between six months and three years, depending on the country that you're in. Um, so I'm a big believer in the director of football concept um, that owns, that, that with the club own their own identity. And it's important that that's set out. And, and this is every level of football, you know, it's not just at the top levels. Um, because what you can't have is a, is a head coach or manager and they're incredible people uh, with loads of technical skill, but they don't own the club is my view of the world. Um, they're a really important part and should play a part in, in evolving and developing that identity, but they don't own it and they don't set it. They should be recruited based on it. So you don't have that clash, but you know, when a head coach comes in and owns the philosophy, then they leave, they take it with them. Um, and if they take it with them, the club then has to start again. Uh, there's a there's a really good podcast by a friend of mine who was working in the UAE, a guy called uh, Richard Clark, and he had uh, the new um, football director at um, Al Jazeera Club, uh, Mads Davison, on, and he goes into this at length, and it's a really really interesting uh, discussion around identity because then that um, that sets the blueprint for how you recruit. So do you recruit from academy first? That's our first recruitment place, and then if there's gaps, then then we go externally. Um, but actually our job is to recruit from academy and that then incentivize the football structure to spend time on their academy and to invest in their academy to produce players. Mm. Now, that means academy recruitment changes. You actually want to bring the best players in as early as you can and that has with it other connotations around relationships with other clubs, how far does your geographical spread apply, FIFA rules, etc, etc. But the philosophy is important and some clubs have a philosophy where you know the first team is everything and that's grand if that's your philosophy but live it um you know philosophy is one of those terms now that's thrown around as a you know or, or a vision it's it's words on a wall or it's uh, it's it's at the bottom of your letterhead but like all these things with values you've got to live them otherwise there's no point writing them down so um, it is a really interesting question but then you know what you mentioned the West Ham example is a really good one um, to stay in the Premier League is the difference between you know 92 million pounds so you know 300 million AED so yeah. what is where do you strike the balance and I don't know I think from a fan's perspective I think certainly at West Ham they'd rather go down as West Ham than stay up as something they don't understand some fans would I think when push comes to shove they'd take a a cheeky 1-0 win in the last game of the year to survive even yeah. with the ownership but um, once you lose your identity you know then your identity is up for grabs you know it's it's you're going with the wind then and you yeah. kind of lose your soul a bit and I think football's in danger at the moment of particularly the higher level of potentially selling that soul on for the TV revenue but you know that's jobs economics they're all important so it's it's easy for me to say that not being at a, a club at that level where I have to make those decisions so um, yeah I, 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 I do empathize with everybody who has to make those kinds of decisions because they're very difficult. Callum, before I let you go, which again, I can't, we need to do a part two. I know I'm going to have to put it in about a year in advance, but we need to do a part two. Um, you've got a couple of upcoming projects and actually uh, something that I'm going to demand. I need 
a, a jersey from a specific team. Can you tell me about that team and can you tell me what role you play for that team? Oh, Mosley. Mosley Football Club in um, a little town. The 8th um, League? Is it the 8th League? It's the 8th Division. So we're in the Northern Premier League, Northwest Division. Um, we're a, I live in the town, which is in the, in the countryside uh, in Northern England. And um, I went with my son uh, to watch a game because we used to go and watch Oldham Athletic, but he can't sit still in a seat for a full game. Go on, Oldham. Yeah, retro, I believe you described <laughs> them as earlier. They are a retro club, but a great club. Um, yeah. But um, at the ground, my son, we get 500 supporters. My son can run around and play. My daughter likes to go down. They right. don't play much. They don't watch much football. They play hide and seek and right. um, they catch each other and chase each other around. But. We are a good community club. Uh, we've got a first team that play at a decent level. The players are semi-professional. Uh, we have lots of junior teams and a women's team and just a great club to be around. And, um, you know, if, if, if anybody fancies a cheeky investment from your listeners, Mosley are all ears, but you will certainly get a jersey. I will send that to you. Yes, please. Um, I have um, taken, on all my travels, I always take a Mosley scarf with me. And nice. I get pictures. There are pictures of me in pretty much every stadium in the UAE and China and Bangladesh with a with a Mosley scarf. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's. I turned up at the ground. They gave me some things to take away, and within seven months, I was the vice chairman of the club. So um, it takes up far too much of my time, and sometimes I I really dislike it. But I always go back for more, which is what football does to you. Brilliant, brilliant. There you have it, folks. I mean, we have reached full time. I, you know what? I'm already thinking of part two. We, are, we have reached full time here. Callum, thank you so much for your time. And everyone, you remember, you can catch us every Monday, Wednesday and Saturday, three to four on Pulse95 Radio in the heart of Sharjah. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. And if you have missed any of the show, you can catch our podcast on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud and Anghami as the podcasts get uploaded straight after this. Enjoy. Have a blessed Saturday. Callum, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, thank you. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday from 3 p.m. 